Junie Burke with the Association for Psychological Science, and I'm here today with a group of authors on the paper, The Future of Women in Psychological Science, published in the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science. Thank you everyone so much for joining me today. I'm Jane Mendel. I'm at Cornell University. Hi, I'm Kristen Lindquist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Hi, I'm Tony Schmader. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. Hi, I'm Adrienne Carter-Sal, and I'm the associate professor and associate head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Texas A&M University. Hi, I'm Eliza Blissmerow. I'm an associate professor of psychology and a core scientist at the California National Primate Research Center, both of which are located at UC Davis. Before we jump in, could you all summarize the main takeaway of your paper? I would say that the main takeaway of our paper suggests that despite progress in some domains of career advancement for women in the field of psychology, there remain some persistent gaps in gender differences between women and men in our field, and our paper sought to better understand what those were. So what exactly led you to research women in psychological science? That's a great question, Junie. What led us to conduct this study arose from a conversation among women faculty. About three years ago, a small number of us were at a psychology conference and remarked to each other on how few women were receiving early career awards at the time. That initial observation really sparked a much bigger discussion about gender disparities that we knew of or had encountered firsthand ourselves in the field. In fact, some of us today on this podcast commiserated about experiences of bias and harassment that we'd encountered in the workplace. I recalled my own sobering experiences during my maternity leave and some of the treatment that I received from my colleagues at the time. I think many of us had assumed in some ways that psychological science was a model of gender parity, having had incredible female role models during many of our own trainings. Yet these lived experiences that we began to discuss and share among women colleagues revealed what seemed to be really glaring issues and impediments that women were still facing in our own field. So we decided to confront these lived experiences with science and to take an approach through science that would raise awareness and ultimately change in our own field. From this initial conversation among women colleagues, we quickly grew into a massive group of over 50 women across subfields and across the country and, and globe to really take stock of the literature in our field to really better understand where did women stand in psychological science and what did the future look like. That was a great answer, June. Thank you. How long did you all work on this? I think it took about four years from start to finish. We went through several restructurings of the paper to try to be sure that we were both comprehensive and accurate in our assessment of the data. And it really is a massive synthesis of articles and references that we encountered. Another quick question. How many authors in total were part of this? 59 total. Wow. And were they all women? Yes, all women. Incredible. So next question. Tell me what surprised you all most about this study? I think one of the first things that stunned me was how much the topic was resonating among so many women in our field. One of the things that surprised me most from an academic and less personal perspective was the question of service. I had thought about service and potential disparities in the types of service academics do for their department and their field for some time. 
one of the things that we uncovered was that there are discrepancies, sometimes in service, but sometimes not. And a key mitigating factor is actually the nature of the department a woman comes from, and particularly the gender of the chair of the department. Within the social sciences, service actually more than doubles when the department chair is male versus female. And I think that is just one of the examples of the level of nuance that we uncovered along the way. One of the things that I found particularly surprising is that while there still exists bias and there are still disparities, the situation in psychological science is actually not as bad as I think many of us thought it might be. So we went into this project because we've all experienced gender discrimination and bias in those early conversations that June alluded to. They all really rang true to us. And when we got into the data, what we realized is that, yes, there were these domains in which bias and gender disparities existed, but there were other domains in which psychological science has actually done a fairly good job. For example, hiring rates of tenure track faculty. And I think that this reflects really cultural change over years, and there's some empirical evidence that this is actually the case. And our achievements in psychological science are really only possible in the context of a changing culture and changing norms about gender. I'd say I was most surprised and intrigued by the findings around grant funding. This has been a really widely debated topic with studies that have come out in different directions. But the key question is, do women face biases and how their grants are evaluated? And in terms of the evaluation of the quality of the grant proposals, what the research seems to suggest is that the answer is no. But one interpretation of this then is that women are writing grants of equally high quality to their male counterparts. But then women still end up with less grant money. So we still have this question of why is that? What the research suggests is when the focus is on funding the researcher, women are awarded fewer grants than when the focus is on funding the research itself. I think one thing that surprised me is that although we still found some evidence for bias, a lot of the gender disparities seem to really be a product of something that was either structural or something that was intrapersonal. So factors really occurring in, <clears throat> in women's own experiences. So our societal norms about women's behaviors really influence what women are expected to do at work and at home for that matter. So for instance, the expectation that women are nurturing caregivers who gladly do unpaid tasks in their departments as well as at home. These societal norms clearly trickle down to women's own beliefs about themselves. So as Tony just alluded to, women submit fewer papers and fewer grants. And I suspect in part, this is because their time is spent elsewhere doing things like the service that Jane spoke about but also because they're either more perfectionistic about those products or they believe that they're less deserving of them or they're less likely to receive them if they apply. Women, perhaps rightly, are perceiving that the structural factors are working against them still in our society. The paper was able to shed light on many ways that the field and the members of our field are sharing a common challenge. And surprisingly, we were able to dispel a myth that the grass is greener elsewhere in the academy. The challenges that individuals are facing in their departments, colleges, institutions, and then across their profession were similar. It was surprising how much there was in common despite the differences and the broad range of contributors.
this paper acknowledges the strides the field has made for women in the past. If you all, just in your professional opinion, could even speculate what sort of practices might have contributed to achieving these accomplishments for women in psychological science, what would you say? Judy, thank you for bringing this up because it is important to focus on the positive news. As Eliza articulated, women are being hired at record rates. Women, in fact, some evidence suggests are even more likely to be hired as assistant professors now in our field. And I think there's been a lot of shifts over time. We would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to recognize the individual women who pursued this career in the past when doing so was atypical or extremely challenging. I have heard stories from senior women colleagues about how they didn't get maternity leave, and so they had to have their babies during the summer so that they could get back to teaching and research right away, or how their PIs insisted that they were the ones in the lab who should be making the coffee because they were the only woman. And we really have come far from that past reality in many regards, and I think all of us are testaments to this fact. I just add that because psychology has a long history of studying how stereotyping and prejudice can lead to inequality, we as a field have legitimized the scientific study of these questions maybe more quickly than some other fields. And maybe as a result of that, I think there's been some relatively quicker acceptance of the recognition of the problems and the need for solutions in our own field. And I think these have included a few things like active efforts on committees in charge of awards or choosing the next editors of major journals or even our own hiring committees in certain departments to make explicit efforts to really strive for equitable representation. It's also the case that compared to many other STEM fields, women are more attracted to psychology compared to, let's say, computer science. And having a critical mass of women in the field also makes it easier to see faster cultural change in the direction of inclusion. Women are more highly represented in some subfields of our discipline than in others. And there can be a lot of variability in how inclusive different departments and subfields are within the field. This can account for, I think, some of the variability in different people's experiences across the discipline. Tony, I think that your answer ties in beautifully to my next question when we begin talking about the discipline. The paper mentions psychology's unique position in confronting the gender gap. Can you all elaborate on this? What makes the field of psychological science unique when it comes to the gender gap? Yeah, I think psychology is uniquely set up to address this question and to do it in an evidence-based way. One of the subdisciplines within the field, social psychology, been studying the science of prejudice and stereotyping for about 70 years. And in the more recent past, there's really been a burgeoning interest in the subtle ways in which gender and ethnic biases can affect not just the way women and other underrepresented groups are treated, but also, but also how they come to see themselves and their roles in the world. So we're a field that has the theory, the methods, much of the evidence base that actually helps us understand the existing disparities that still remain. And so it just makes sense that we focus those tools inward on our own field and the progress we've made, but where we also still have to go. Thank you again, Tony. What would you all want people who read this paper, if they're women or if they're professionals in other fields or if they're professionals in psychology, What would you want them to take away from this paper? What are some 
practices professionals of even other academic disciplines might be able to participate in in order to reduce the presence of this gender gap. But one of the clearer take-home messages that I've found really powerful is that many of the prevalent gender gaps still exist in psychological science or exist in other fields can be less under closed. And I think this knowledge is really powerful. So knowing, for example, that there are comparable hiring rates for men and women into tenure track jobs in psych has empowered me to call out the lack of gender diversity in my other primary field, which is non-human primate neuroscience. And when people say things like, well, you know, things are changing, but slowly, you can kind of come back and say, no, they can be changed and it can happen now. I think another practice that's really important for all of us in psych and in other fields is to document everything. So having data that demonstrate where the disparities are and data that can be used to drive or direct program development to address those disparities is critical to make change. I do a lot of research looking at women's experiences in very male-dominated fields like engineering. On average, I think these fields are a decade or two behind where psychology is in terms of people's interest and awareness of the ways in which cultural forces in the field can repel women and inhibit their ability to be successful. The important goal is that admitting that there's a problem in the first place and changing the systems that enable those habits is really a big part of the solution. Thank you for those great answers. I think what all of you really touched upon with this theme of documentation is the role of research and the power that it has to change the future. I think what really stood out to me were these smaller habits in the paper that you all mentioned, such as making meetings at family-friendly hours. Just in your opinion, as professionals in the field of psychology, but also as women, what does a professional field where no gender gap exists? look like? I just say that it's one where there's a diversity of topics that are valued. So I think it's important to remember that for psychology, a field that's so about studying what human behavior is, part of the future of psychological science for us is thinking about the representation of the people who do the research, but it's also making sure we have equal representation and value to the types of questions that we're asking. I'll add, Junie, that I think a field in which there are no gender disparities is not just about representation. So it's not just about, it's been sort of bandied around that psychology maybe didn't have a gender problem because there are so many women increasingly in our ranks. And yet, if you look under the surface, it's really the presence of disparity in career outcomes, in people's sense of belonging, in who is considered eminent and the prototypical psychologist that creates these gender disparities in our field. A field that has no gender disparity would be a field in which people's outcomes are largely the same for the same amount of work put in and expectations are similar for men and women of what it means to be successful. I agree. This is Adrian, and I think that the field represents our society. And I know it's been mentioned that that means not just in numerical representation, but in terms of what occurs related to professional visibility and the power dynamics and the social structures that endure. This idea of what the field could look like with no gender disparities is really the idea that our society will have addressed the challenges, the opportunities, the obstacles, and the people who are part of this process are able to be successful in getting to this stage or this level. 
I would also emphasize that a field without disparity is one in which science is sped. Science itself benefits from diverse perspectives. Our own experiences and identities shapes the questions that we ask, how we answer them, what we count as data, our sort of own philosophical biases that we bring into the lab. With a sort of unified goal of psychology as understanding the mind, I think that having people of all sorts of backgrounds playing on an equal field actually has the potential to speed scientific discovery in ways that we probably can't even imagine because we've spent so much of our intellectual time as a field without all of these perspectives represented. So we've been talking about women in general, but I'd like to bring up women who might identify with different groups or diverse identities. So how might they be differently affected by the gender gap? I think that the topic of intersectionality is a really important contribution to the paper. What we are exposing here are the inequities and the injustices that exist for marginalized members of the field, as well as the knowledge that's represented that we rely on for the precedents and practices in academia. The circumstances for women are also the circumstances for women of color, and the circumstances for people of color are also the circumstances for women scholars of color. So despite the compounded burdens that are faced by many women scholars of color, the research shows that there's really little attention to the successes gained or the personal financial health and well-being costs paid by women scholars of color who are persisting and existing in the field. I think it's so important for us to remember that the strides that have been made in the field for women in general have not been equally enjoyed for women of color. And scholars from underrepresented ethnic and racial backgrounds, especially women, continue to face extraordinarily subtle, if not explicit barriers to their ability to excel and to feel like they have an equal seat at the table. I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done for women with intersecting identities. For one, this means that in our rush to foster diversity and inclusion, for example, we can't just merely expect or ask women of color to do an outsized role. We need to be able to assign other individuals to those roles to be allies, to be equity advocates, and to have them engage in accountability for the metrics to really push our field further towards inclusion. We recognize that gender is a continuum, and we talk in the paper about men and women, male and female experiences in a dichotomous way, because that's the data that exists largely for us to draw upon. And it is a sort of artificial categorization based on what we had to work with in the paper. For more junior women who have entered the field of psychology who might have read this study, what sort of takeaway would you want them to have from this paper? I guess I would hope that junior women would be able to focus on the good news that comes from the data, that women are increasingly achieving in our field. We have colleagues on the paper who have given famous TED Talks, given congressional testimonies, who have written best-selling books, who are really the leaders in our field. I think the takeaway that I would like junior scholars to have is that you can do this. Some of the data suggests that women are opting out of the career because they perceive that it's challenging to have a family and have a career or that they will face undue bias. And the data suggests that that is largely not true. I would also urge junior women to dive in and see what happens. And then once you're there, don't pull up the ladder behind you.
in addition to the sort of positive news that Kristen talks about, I think there will continue to be change if there are people in the field pushing for it. And there are a lot of us already present who are trying to scaffold the experiences so that other people can come along behind us and ultimately move with us to create equity. I think this paper itself, the fact that we came together to write it, is a testament to what Eliza and Kristen were both saying about change is happening, and I think more change is on the horizon that really promotes a very hopeful future for women in psychological science. I'd like to extend my message beyond just early career. What we're providing and what hopefully resonates to readers is that there are important lessons that are being learned and for the next group or the current group, regardless of what stage you're in, everyone can contribute to the better future for the field. Being honest about the environment and the obstacles is not a warning sign to not participate, but really just an invitation for people to come in well-informed of what they're going to encounter, but to persist so that we all are better off for having been through this experience, meaning bringing light to areas that were not part of the conversation and making all of us accountable for a better profession than where we were. I would just add to this conversation the importance of mentorship for those junior women coming into the field, for those of us who are more senior just the importance of sort of finding that person who can be a mentor that you can go to with questions. It's so important that we have these open conversations and not just conversations among women, but we have these conversations with men in our profession as well, so that there's just greater shared understanding of the structural factors that play and how we can kind of work together to create these more inclusive cultures for everyone to excel in. A field that does the kind of examination that we've done in our study is a field that actually has a lot to offer. This kind of intense scrutiny of what is typical, what is normal, what is acceptable, where do biases exist, where do they not, and what can be done about them is a field that has a lot to offer younger scholars. Thank you all. I am glad, Tony, that you brought up this point, too, about mentoring. I did undergraduate research. And that was what led me to consider an internship like this one, having a mentor who led me through psychological research and taught me what it was about was most influential when it came to feeling invited into the field. I just want to echo that again, because I think that's such an interesting point that so often, unfortunately, women need to feel like they're invited to the table. And I think that, that we see that really across all levels of advancement. So it's not just for junior women. I think it's when we talk about how do we provide pathways for women to become eminent scholars in the field, that invitation from others can be really important and a powerful way that we can be influential to others as well. Thank you all so much for joining me. This has been so much fun. Thank you, Junie. Thank you. Thanks so much, Junie. Thanks for having us, Junie. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.